Hello ladies and folks. I am so excited for a guest that I have today. Her name is Dr. Della Tagapur and she is also known as the Vein Doctor and we are going to talk about Mankini Gate as I have been referring to it. Um, so hello. Okay, she's coming in now. Connecting. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well. I'm so excited. Number one, you are so cute. You're like Aww. the cutest oh person God. I've ever seen, and your smile is like. Oh my God! I love you. <laughs> How are you so photogenic? Like, what is your trick? It's all lies. I don't know what it is. It's like a really good dye job, I think. <laughs> After that, I don't know. I love a pixie And you're cut. also stunning and beautiful. I was looking through all of your pictures and I was like, you. you're already stunning. And then you made this picture perfect family. I was like, okay, goals, people, goals. <laughs> I do have a close friend who has a pixie cut and I feel like it takes a very specific person to pull it off. And it's so magical when it works and it works on you. I, I just love it. You're so sweet. Thank you. So I'm so excited to talk to you. I was thrilled when I saw that you are the vein doctor. Um, number one, have you heard of Dr. Dung Nguyen? Do you know who that is? She works yeah. in California and she does a lot of surgery. So I work with her and I was so excited when I saw that you guys have that same specialty. She's awesome. That's um, awesome. So I don't know her personally, but I when I started getting interested in the specialty, I just started like looking for women in anything related to veins, like some, you know, some people just do veins, some people do vascular medicine and surgery. So I was just like, Ooh, women, it's, a very, it's a such very, a small percentage of us. It's, I was going to say, I thought I read somewhere at 6% of vascular surgeons are female. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So what got you into that? And then what do you think? Why do you think there's so few females? Is that like a lower, I guess, I don't know if you know how many women are physicians overall versus like, is your specialty a lower ratio of female to male physicians. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I don't have necessarily all of the answers by the book, but I know right. that in general, so now it's at a point where coming into med school, we're about 50-50, 50% /50, 50 oh, really? men, 50% women. Yeah, and in some oh, states, wow. it's even like 52% women. So we're doing really good, wow. a really good job at like kind of equalizing that playing field yeah but unfortunately what ends up happening is that yeah okay like we're all in med school together now but then as we break off into the specialties mm -hmm. you get more male dominated versus female dominated fields and mm -hmm. and then when you go into subspecialties like you would do general surgery and then vascular surgery okay. so there's even fewer women who are going into the subspecialties and so hmm. It's a mixed bag of reasons. I feel like part of it is no matter how like fierce the feminists we are, um, and we are, but like we, a lot of us want to be moms too. And then when you do start to have a family and you have these other sort of priorities, you think about like, well, do I really want to stay in training for another 47 years like I've been in? Or do you want to kind of like get things going? So that's, that can be one aspect that's like, obviously not true for everybody. Another aspect Good is point. that like, I've posted about it. It's intimidating when it's already so male dominated and there is so much pushback and there's so much, um, 
I don't know, it's not necessarily always welcoming. Hmm. And I don't mean that about other vascular surgeons. I mean that about like the fields and the subspecialties in general. It becomes a boys club. And when you're not encouraged to go towards something, you might not, you know, want to be in that space. Sure. Um, it's not necessarily even, the most welcoming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I I try to anyone that I talk to, any mentees, any friends, any anybody, and I'm always just like, listen, I know that it's really, really hard when you have to push against something to be in a space. But the more people who do it, and the more people who show that it's possible, then like you maybe you're being a martyr but you're being a martyr for the next generation and then the next generation of you know folks who come through are like oh wow i know a woman who's a vascular surgeon like maybe i could be a vascular surgeon totally um and like i actually became friends with a vascular surgeon through this whole um online social networking thing and she's just like become a mentor for me she's been doing it for like one or two decades and oh um and it's just really nice because the percentage is so low that you're just like, oh, you can teach me the ways. Yeah, or you can just see, okay, you've done it for so long, you're successful, you have a balanced yeah. life, it's possible, you know, it's yeah. not impossible what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Okay, okay so for anybody who doesn't know what, I'm calling it Medkini Gate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. Can you, can you please explain um, number one, like just for anybody who isn't familiar with medical journals, like they're not really the Us Weekly of physicians. They are, you know, so maybe explain a little bit about what a medical journal is and then why was this article like so much drama? Yeah, absolutely. So medical journals, and I'm sure if you've seen a lot of like the really angry posts and the uproar about it is because medical journals are our trusted resource for information, for the most up-to-date research, the most up-to-date clinical advances, the most up-to-date scientific advances. And so um, each sort of specialty and subspecialty have specific journals that become our like go-to places for information. And the Journal for Vascular Surgery is certainly one of our top places to go to in vascular it is. surgery. Okay. That was it I is. mean I figured it was a, a renowned yeah. journal. I didn't know. So it is a renowned it's journal. Like, it's like and, Bible, you know, if something's if something's published there, it feels like okay, a lot of other doctors have reviewed it. It's it's uh something yeah. you can trust as a physician. Yeah. It's supposed good. to be. Okay. Right. So <laughs> now each not every journal is created equal. And okay. so they, they have different scoring systems for journals, and it has to do with a combination of sort of how many people uh, use their journals. So because, again, in our specialties and subspecialties, we really rely on these sources. Mm -hmm. Despite what people think, we're not Googling answers. You know, we really go with the latest and greatest information. And so, um, so for example, if I did a study on like five patients, that's not gonna be a really big deal. But if I've combined with a bunch of different um, surgeons and we combine our data and we do a legitimate trial and we have you know 10,000 patients in it, I mean, and we publish it in a reputable journal, that might become the standard of care across the country and even the world. So these journals really, really carry a lot of weight. Um, and so, they're expected to be thoroughly 
um, examined and like everything is supposed to be peer reviewed, mm. which brings me to another point. So a lot of people were saying, how is this even peer reviewed? And I think it might be um, a slight misunderstanding of what that term means. Okay. So in order for um, these journals to publish this research, it has to, so the scientists and physicians and whomever, researchers, we'll just call them researchers, they do the research. And then before they're even allowed to do research on human subjects, they have to go through an IRB approval, an institutional review board approval. Which is like so that's a nightmare. That I've done that before. Well, and it was like, I stopped. <laughs> I did do yeah. a research project, but it was just so much work to like type up everything and present yeah. to the, I did present to the IRB board and I was just like, I don't really care that much. I'm sorry, but at the end of the day, like you could give up your whole life to do this project that it was just 100%. too much work, honestly. Yeah. It, genu it genuinely is. And I did research for a couple of years, so it was just like a big part of my life. But you really, it's meant to, it is meant to kind of be a little hard because we don't want everything getting through that process. We really want to keep people safe. And so that when there is a trial going on, you know, someone has said, hey, this is okay to do the human being. So we don't have things like Tuskegee happening again and, and the, the trials that were done without this process. And so you go through someone, the it's supposed to be like a whole, it is of a whole board of people and physicians. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Totally. And so you go through that process, you do your study, you write it up and then you submit it. And when you submit it to a journal, there is supposed to be a peer review process. And so these folks who, again, it's not supposed to be one person, it's a group of people who are going through and literally line by line, word by word, analyzing what you wrote, making sure that it's legitimate, making sure it was done correctly, making sure that it's reproducible, making sure that the conclusions you come to are things you can actually come to based on your data. It's a whole, whole crazy process and it's, it's really thing. important. It's a thing. <laughs> so the thing is that when I say it's peer reviewed, it doesn't mean that like you read it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that I threw it out and let a whole bunch of female vascular surgeons approve that horrible article. It's that that journal has a group of experts mm -hmm. that they have deemed experts in that field. Okay. And whose reputations have deemed them experts in that field. And those folks who have that as a as a position, as a part-time or full-time position is to be um, in that role, they review the article. Mm. So what happened here, if you look at the list of who's on their review board, it's mostly, if not all men. Mm. And now that doesn't mean being a man equals you're gonna be a misogynistic, like horrible, I'm not, this is not a man bashing session. Sure, This is course. a, like, we need to fix the ones who are doing the, the women bashing, you know? Yes. So, um, so what, what I think is happening here is that there's sort of older generation, kind of outdated thinking, okay. old fashioned like boys doing things. kind of physicians are men right. and they know better than the patient kind of, or like, I've been watching Call the Midwife and it's interesting just so it's very different than the practice that I've seen even in my own life where the doctors yeah. talk about the patient 
like the patient is right there, but they're talking about them like they're not there instead of like what I've come to know as like a more of a relationship with the patient, but it's all men, you know, and so. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and again, it's not that they maybe even had the intentions of these consequences, but when you sort of are asking a group who might not be very social media savvy, might not think that that's appropriate, you know, for a young doctor to do. Um, It might not have been a bad intention at all, you know, but I think what this elucidated is that like intentions aren't really the thing, right? You have to look at the consequences and I, and that's just important in science and medicine always is that we have to, we're expected to, to look at the consequences of our decisions and our actions and our thought processes. So, um, you know, to even come up with the concept of that ridiculous study, let alone perform it and get approval for it, and then let alone it going through this peer review process and getting published, there's so many points that it should have stopped and been like, someone should have just said, what? What are we doing here? Um, And and it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one stopped it. And again, I don't want this to be a man bashing session, which it's not. And I also, I thought it was interesting. I, I want to, you know, there's a line here, but there was a female author as part of right. my team. Um, and it looks like she has maybe like decades of experience. Um, and again, she's one of the 6% of 100%. So she's already like kind of in the minority mm-hmm. of being a female there. So I thought that was interesting because a lot of people were repeating, oh, it's all men, you know, it's all white old men that have done this, but not necessarily. It was, you know, there was a a woman on the team of seven or eight authors. So um, I did note that. I don't know if you have any thoughts or. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that we sort of sometimes falsely think that, oh, just because you're a woman, you are going to be super mindful of the things that other women are upset by. You know, there are women with varying views, right? There are people who might not believe in reproductive rights. There are people that might not believe in, I don't know, X, Y, Z, other topics that make me unprofessional to talk about, but unprofessional. Um, But, and it doesn't make them less of a woman. It's just their views and their perspective. It might be, you know, there are women who still support Trump. I mean, you know, you come from a conservative background and you might support something that doesn't necessarily help you. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And it, it might not necessarily be good for womankind, but you believe in it because of religious or political views or because of other reasons. And so, you know, I, I get it. I mean, not everyone is going to be on the same page about that. And there are going to be plenty of women who do believe that showing cleavage, you know, is inappropriate and, um, you know, oh, gosh forbid you wear a baby suit. boobs just might oh. be inappropriate. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, you'll, you'll, like, you'll pass out if you see someone's nipple outline. I don't know what they think. I mean, you know, and there's cultural reasons that people might think that things are should be deemed inappropriate or not. So I think also, you know, in this process, it is, it is very easy to get angry at this article. And trust me, I was and I am. But I also can understand that, that some people are more conservative and reserved in their views. And so, you know, they might 
be like, oh, but the study was just saying that it's inappropriate to hold, you know, a beer up and to be in your bathing suit. And I don't want to see my doctor like that. And that might be legitimately their perspective. Mm -hmm. But to do a trial like that and to put that out into the scientific world just perpetuates this, like, misunderstanding of what our positions at as providers are meant to be and it's not to, to be godlike to anybody it's not meant to be this old outdated paternalistic approach where like doctors or providers and you know everyone who's pr providing the care mm -hmm. sort of stands here looks at you evaluates you tells you what's wrong with you tells you what to do about it and then it's done you know that used to be the relationship between providers yeah. and patients and i think some of the the old heads, that's what, that's where their mindset is. And so they want to maybe maintain this certain level of respect and this certain air about the profession. But doctors nowadays, we recognize that we're human first, right? We want work-life balance and we want um, relationships with our patients and the ability to text them and do telemedicine and just sort of update medicine but people have to also remember and you're in healthcare you know medicine as far as like advances in actual technology we're really far ahead but in mindset we're not hmm. i mean that's just the nature of the game we move really slowly in that regard because people stay in the profession for decades and decades and decades yeah you don't right? have this huge like loan and all these debt and then change your mind and want to go into insurance yeah. you usually are like no yes you stay a provider so yeah yeah so i mean i think it you know we we have to think about all of those things um but it doesn't mean we can't push it we can't like bring it to light so that even some of the people who didn't see a problem with it now are like oh this pissed off a whole lot of women and a whole lot of allies maybe that was dumb, you know, because a lot of people were like, well, they wouldn't have retracted it if we didn't make a fuss. And they wouldn't have. And they no. wouldn't have been apologetic. They didn't know. They didn't realize the first time. So. Yeah. I mean, and if they realized, they didn't care. You know, this was mm -hmm. published several months ago, almost a year ago. And so. Really? I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Oh. So, like, they were chilling. I mean, they published it. They knew what they were doing. And so why did it become a thing all of a sudden then? I actually don't know who it was that like probably. what individual person sort of read it and was probably so upset about it that they were like, oh, hell no, let's shut this down. <laughs> yeah. And it started a movement and I'm really glad it did. But, um, you know, and I think it is because it was in a very reputable journal or, uh, journal and it really impacts us particularly when we have so few women in vascular surgery mm. that you know it affects everyone and i think that's why it was so easy for everyone to be an ally right away i mean the solidarity solidarity posts way outweighed you know how many vascular surgeons could post because there's only but so many and because people recognize it's it's a problem across the board yes it's interesting I just keep like have a hard time wrapping my mind around the fact that it was published in a medical journal just because it mm -hmm. feels like an interest piece or like a um it is such a different it's a perspective piece it's like a a personal mm -hmm. ideas and I think 
I kind of was trying to gauge like art would people be offended if they saw their physician drinking or like in a bathing suit whether it be male or female but we'll say female because that's really what the uh, minority is here that's kind of facing the hardships but and it really feels like people wouldn't mind like in fact I was watching the show Lennox Hill and there were some physicians did you watch the show no, no, no. You should watch it. It's really good. I, I recommend it to anyone in healthcare and anybody actually who's not in healthcare. Um, yeah. It just shows a little bit about like physicians. And to be totally honest with you, there were years that I worked in the hospital where I never, I, you know, I'm supposed to be working hand in hand with the physician, but I saw them for like five minutes of the day. They'd come in and I'm like, hey, these were the labs. Like, are this, <laughs> this is what the patient's doing. Are they dying? No. Okay. Yes. Okay. Like, I'll do that. Okay. Thank you. And like, just not having that personal relationship with the physician. Yes. But, so I think it, it was um, like alarming to some people to know that like their physician might go to the beach or like enjoy alcohol at a wedding or something. Yeah. I don't even know where I'm going with this, but just in general, I think it's crazy that it was in a journal because, and I do wonder if maybe some older generations would be offended at that. But um, I asked my mom, who's actually very like conservative. And I was like, what do you think about this? Like, and I was kind of expecting her to be more on the line of, oh, like that's not professional to put, you know, photos online of yourself in a bikini. But she was like, well, who's to decide what's professional? Yeah. And that's, and it's not just medicine, it's, it's any profession, like, what is, what does it mean to be a professional? And if you're a physician, like, does that mean you can't be a relatable human? Like, it's, yeah, it's an yeah. interesting whole discussion point, I guess. No, totally. I mean, I think, for me, that just makes me think of a couple of things. One, I almost think about like, you know, when you're in middle school, and if you go to get a burger or whatever and you see your teacher there yes. and you're like wait you don't belong here you're not part of real life you're supposed to be at school and I'm supposed to be here I remember having that like inter not the interaction but just the memory of bumping into a teacher outside of school and I was like what no That's weird you don't belong here yes so maybe people have that with their doctors like oh well you're this person that I trust with my most like vulnerable moments and I trust you with literally my life so you're not supposed to do anything that takes away from that image and I get like where that's coming from but it's just not realistic you know we mm -hmm. we have sex in order to have babies I know it's weird to hear that out loud <laughs> but like it's a whole thing and you know not everyone drinks but the people who do they don't come to work drunk we just drink yeah. you know? which I think that's like the main point like <laughs> Like, just because someone posts a photo of them with, like, a champagne flute at a wedding does not mean they're, like, operating on people right. with a buzz. Like, that's... Exactly. I assure you have never been buzzed while I was operating on anyone. <laughs> yes. Um, and, but, you know, like, and I think, so that's just, like, the human part of it. I think people mm -hmm. don't even realize that they're projecting that all the time uh, or sometimes, but I, I think it's kind of human nature in that sense. But the other sense is that, like, so I talk to my family, too, and my family is conservative, not in a political sense, but just in a cultural sense. Right. And I'm Iranian, and we, you know, I was brought up having a lot of their views. You know, I was born in Iran. I came when I was little. And for my family and my parents particularly, um, do find it inappropriate for me to wear a bikini 
online. Now, it's less to do with the fact that I'm a physician and more to do with like, oh, there's all these gross people online and they're just like mm -hmm. staring at you and they're having their thoughts and they're downloading your picture and who knows what's going to come of it. It's so a they're terrifying like, thought. <laughs> I know it's a little gross when they put it that way. And it's like, if I, if they're like, what if you want to be a politician someday and you have these bathing suit pictures? I'm like, well, first lady. So, I mean, I think we're good. I think that standard has changed. But like, you know, their views kind of have always been like, be very mindful of what you post. And um, they're not big into social media in general and barely like for me to post family members, or fam you know, family pictures or whatever. So I had to go back a little ways to see a picture of your mom. <laughs> yeah, and I like some of them, I used to have a, a bunch and then I fussed with them once and I was just like, listen, if you guys don't wanna be on here, like I'm, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and I take them down because I don't want, you know, I think everyone has a right to decide how much of themselves they want to expose and not. And I had a couple of really sweet, sweet people DM me and they're like, you inspired me to post a bikini picture, but I really don't want to. I'm kind of scared, but I will for the movement. I was like, no, 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 no. That's not what the movement's about. It's not so you have to do it. It's that you have a right to be human and that should be more than enough. And it doesn't have to be with a bikini picture for you to, to establish that. And so I think, you know, just respecting the fact that what's good for you might not be good for someone else. And instead of imposing judgment on it and deciding that in any way, like their ability to be a good doctor or provider of any sense is affected by the fact that they've gone to the beach or the pool or whatever, or, you know, it's, it's silly. It's just silly when you say it out loud. It's silly when it's you know? just silly and everything, you know, and especially when you look at the other things they deem inappropriate, which is to have like basically religious or political opinions or like, mm -hmm. I'm like, if anyone scrolls through my IG and sees how many protests I've been to, I mean, you're not going to be shocked that I also might have a bathing suit on there. Like normal person, if you don't want me to be your doctor, I, I am very sorry. I would love to be your doctor, but if you don't want me to, that's okay. Like, sure. you know, and, and people, I guess, decide but you know to to deem it inappropriate is silly it's, it's also silly. interesting now that i'm hearing you say that like the generations that might be offended by a bathing suit photo with someone with a drink are probably not the same generation of patients that are like finding their providers on instagram <laughs> before they have an appointment exactly <laughs> so that's kind of a funny uh yeah. thought too like the younger totally. more progressive generations it doesn't seem like they care as much they believe that physicians are humans and want to be treated by a human and so yeah that's kind of an interesting I guess yeah. just kind of thinking of this do you think there's anything that would be inappropriate to post online as a physician yeah I mean hate speech and you know like there there's definitely things that are symbolic of what is universally accept, accepted as being inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think that no one should escape that. You know what I mean? Like, and we've seen that. We've seen that, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, where th people have become more vocal in both directions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the folks who have, you know, racists or anti-Semitic or anti-whatever or extremely homophobic or transphobic comments... And, you know, the internet's great and they put them on blast and then they lose their jobs and they're like, oh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I never meant that 
noose that I put a picture of like, of yes, you did. And you deserve to be fired and you deserve more than that. But sure, let's start with you being fired. And, you know, people sort of feel like sometimes social media and the internet in general is this space where they get to, I don't know, do and say whatever they want. That's kind of, I guess, part of the concept of trolling and People feel like there's this shield and this separation, and it's just not true. Anonymous. Anymore. It's just like not how we use the internet. Voice. Yeah. 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 Like, I guess you can try to stay anonymous, but, you know, that you're probably just a troll or a stalk People or whatever. Can find but... you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so <laughs> I think, yeah. To your point, I mean, there is some things, there are some things that are truly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to remember that though we do have rights and freedoms and we should absolutely wear and dress and post as we want, like there could be consequences, right? Like mm -hmm. there are all sorts of jobs outside of healthcare um, that don't um, like, will tell you in advance straight up that they'll search you, you know, and mm -hmm. um, aside from LinkedIn, like they'll Google search you and see what social media apps you have and they'll log on and check you out. But I don't think it's necessarily that they're freaking out. You're holding a drink. I think it's more so to just see what kind of person you are. And in general, what kind of energy you're putting out now, even for me as a fellow and someone who still, um, well, is one of the groups that was targeted in this art article, it was the fellows and the residents who are looking for jobs afterwards, which was mm -hmm. the, which was the crappy part because that you're being targeted and, secretly stalked in this totally unethical way with these private fake, you know, social media accounts. Yes. And it's really to determine whether or not you're going to have a job, which is your livelihood. And after all the years of studying and education or whatever, like that's detrimental. And so it's really um, ammunition that just shouldn't be given out. And um, do you think they yeah. looked at your Instagram? Um, my company in general? No, like, because it was, it was looking at uh, residents. Like, do you believe, was the study looking at your personal Instagram? Do you know? No, I don't think so. Because when the study was like, actually, it takes a while for them to do the study versus publishing it. I was still in general surgery. So I wouldn't have been in there. The um, okay. Yeah, in the subspecialty. I am now, but it's already been published. So, but again, it's a journal that my organization uses and you know yeah. who knows you know if the thinking is aligned but it's my page is open. it's not even locked so i know and that's the thing with private i actually don't find that a lot of physicians i work with have social media like i don't know if they're just too busy or don't want to spend the time doing it but i'm not really friends with a lot of the physicians that i work with online actually i yeah. don't know i'm always like what do you do on the weekends like what do you have a weekend like what do you what's what's your yeah. personal life it's like little um tidbits but um yeah that is that is interesting you had mentioned that you had a lot of people write you saying that they had experienced sexism in medicine and i'm like dying to hear your experience so I'm a nurse and I'm a female and obviously that's like a female dominated field. I think we had like out of our class of 70 or whatever, there were like seven guys, all of which were in my cohort in OB. Like, you know, we were with different clinical groups and it was me, one other girl, and then all seven of the male nurses from our whole cohort in OB. Which you was found a way to be in a male dominated group. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what are the odds? Like, why did they do this? 
you're saying it's 50 50 but then as you get to the more specialties it's lower like um what would you mind sharing what kind of sexism you've encountered in the field or you said you and you said you have a lot of people right obviously i don't need you to share their personal experiences but i guess i was surprised to see that there was such blatant sexism in medicine that i didn't have that i haven't experienced that firsthand like can you talk a little bit about that yeah sure i mean i think you know, it's not always easy to talk about these things and certainly not everyone should feel like they have to, but I think the more we talk about it and we create that space where other people can talk about it, I think then people stop feeling so alone and terrified. And um, I still haven't even been able to respond to all the, like the stories and the advice that people are seeking because I, I want to give like heartfelt, you know, um, responses and, and I want to give it time, but you know, for me personally, being in general surgery, I was in a program that rotated me around to a lot of different hospitals. So I don't want anyone to think, I'm sure they all know where my home institution was, but it's not that it's isolated there. I actually rotated at uh, probably like over 10 hospitals in the DMV. So, um, but you know, it's sometimes it's just microaggressions and sometimes it's blatant. I mean, the number of married men attendings who are, in that level when I'm in training and I'm a resident and they're attendings, they're my bosses for all intents and purposes. They are responsible for whether or not I'm going to finish a program and can ruin your life. And when there is that dynamic and they're married and flirting with you and overtly um, suggesting that things happen, it, it can, it's caused some girls that I know to quit programs um, and to just be devastated or get depressed or get suicidal. And I mean, it, it can really, really, really affect you depending on how bad it is. Um, and unfortunately I know way too many people where it's affected them a great deal. Um, it could be little things like I'm operating and someone while I'm operating slips their hand, like, and brushes against my, like I'm operating and my med students next to me, like, what are you doing? How do you want me to react right now? Um, um, brushing against my body, making comments like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. Oh, this was almost verbatim. I was, I was a fourth year medical student and I had matched in surgery and uh, it was, a, it was a visiting surgeon. It was not a surgeon at our hospital. And they were like, oh, that's great that you matched in surgery. We're so excited for you. Um, you pick the best specialty, blah, 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 whatever he was saying. And then he was like, oh yeah, but as soon as you want to be a mom, I know you're going to quit. I mean, this, I'm talking about eight or nine years ago, and that still stuck with me. And I'm pretty tough, you know, and it, but it, it affects you because it makes you think that that's how um, other men in the field look at you. And, you know, like I said, it's 50-50 when it's med school, but it's definitely not 50-50 in surgery, and it's definitely not 50-50 in vascular, as we talked about. So, you know, when you think that that's how you're perceived, um, or welcome. Oh, well, that's so insane to tell somebody oh. oh, we're happy for you, but then you're going to be gone. Like mm -hmm. that's just so insulting. Yeah. And oh yeah, I mean, um, and then there's things that are done because it's gentlemanly. Oh, get so and so to do it because he's strong. Get so and so to do it because mm. he's a guy. Get so and so to do it and. I'm like, I don't know about you guys, but after a couple of years in a level one trauma center, when there was a drunk, belligerent, like crazy patient going wild, they called me in. So <laughs> I don't know. Like, 
I don't know what right. I did to prove it to them at the end, but well, it was the drugs I could sprinkle, not the, not necessarily <laughs> the guns, but that's the thing. As doctors, it shouldn't be about the guns. It should be about our knowledge and what we can do with the medications and with our skill sets. So, um, you know, just stuff like that. It really, honestly, I could keep talking about it because there's a lot of examples, but um, yeah, it sort of seeps into a lot of aspects. And I don't think that's just common for medicine. I think that's probably every job. Like I, I think of a lawyer, um, teachers are most, a lot of young women, but you know, any profession that you think of, I'm sure there's that mentality or fear that, you know, if I start a family, if I want to have kids, do, will that negatively affect me? Um, yeah. And I had seen an account, I, I think it's mama attorney or mom attorney saying these just like little quotes like, oh, you probably won't be back after you leave for maternity leave or right. saying things like that, where it's just, it's sexist. And it's, mm -hmm. nobody's called it out like that before. But it really is you know, a part of life that you're saying you're not going to succeed because you're a woman is, yeah. is kind of the bottom line. Um, do you have and any? Then, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Do you I was just going to say, it, oh, no, you go. <laughs> we keep doing it. I was just going to say, it happens inside and outside of medicine to me, too. I mean, even guys I've dated, it's been like, oh, I, I dated another guy who was um, also a surgical resident, um, uh, orthopedic surgery resident, and I, one of the things he said to me, he was like, oh, yeah, but when we get married and have kids, you're going to quit, right? <laughs> As though we hadn't gone through the same, you know, med school training, the same residency training, the same intensity, the same passion, the same drive, the same whatever that got me there, that got him there. And I was just like, I guess you don't actually know who you're dating. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> or, um, you know, I've had um, a, a guy who is a veterinarian who uh said uh real doctors treat more than one species you know I, i'm like <laughs> what's that mean just, i don't know like i guess i'm not doctor enough um i don't know and then other ones that have said things like um oh as i've started this subspecialty training and he asked me well why does it take a year to understand veins they seem pretty simple keep in mind not a physician not in medicine and i was like you're right. The the uh, the undergrad I went to, the four years of med school, the three years of grad school, the seven years of residency to get to this one year fellowship. You're right. It's a piece of cake. I should have had it memorized last weekend. Like, now that you mention it, it is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> like my bad. I'm sorry. I should have been done with that. So oh it, it happens all the time, and it's really it's really funny because um, I like can be either intimidating or whatever you want to call it for people to date a woman in medicine and surgery if they're not also in it. I didn't really realize that that would be a problem until I saw that it was a little bit of a problem. So yeah, the sexism spreads wide. <laughs> That's crazy. Especially as a physician, you're like, Yes, I, I did all of this, these years of, of training and, you know, thousands of dollars I've spent. But if I am lucky enough to bear your child, it's all behind me. Like, it's I will. All... Just... <laughs> like, yeah, I uh, recently wow. explained that uh, when I when asked to change my last name on a second date, I was like, well, I have, I think, six different degrees. I've been published like 30 or 40 times. I've presented like almost 50 times 
it'd be kind of weird to switch names at this point in my life. And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess that would be a lot of paperwork. And I was like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> paperwork. So that's like one thing at the social security. Yeah, it's but... been it's been really funny. So when so when other people send me their their messages, their DMs, and they write things, I'm like, yeah, I know. I know, girl. I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is wild. Yeah. Do you have any advice for women in medicine or women who want to become surgeons or really any like women oh. who are a minority in uh, a field, for example? Yeah. I mean, I, it would take a whole another hour of IG live, I think to go through the things because I think it really depends on what they're facing. You know, I think one thing is to just not let how intimidating it feels become how intimidating it is functionally for you. You know, like hmm. I didn't necessarily have a lot of um, female surgeons ahead of me that were my mentors until I got into residency and then I found a ton. But when I was a med student, I didn't really have any. And I think it would have really helped me earlier on to decide because I was actually peds oncology in my mind really? before surgery. That's a totally different story. But um, <laughs> find a mentor, you know, reach out to me, reach out to a million people until someone responds because it matters. It's important. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be someone who you're going to talk to all the time, but just like seek stories of people who have made it and done it and found a way and then try to try to emulate sort of that pattern because there are ways, you know, and there are ways to get yourself into programs that, you know, have already had someone break that cycle. And there is mm -hmm. a woman who's done it ahead of you. And there are people, um, you know, minorities who are in the programs. You can always be the first one, you know, in something, but um, you can also place yourself in a, in a situation with a little bit less resistance. And I think, you know, balancing the fact that you, you can talk, um, you can speak up for yourself and, and you can find someone who will listen and you can advocate for yourself and you can push through, I think is really important because our voices have been diminished a lot over centuries and, and it, and, you know, it's time to change. And the more people of our generations and our age groups that then become the leaders, I mean, this will become less and less of a problem, I hope. But um, until then, we sort of do still have to push against all of that. So just kind of being prepared to do that, remembering you're absolutely not alone, um, that you're not the only one who has faced it or is feeling it or, you know, knowing that you feel so targeted, but it's really, once you kind of see that it exists out there, it can kind of, it, it can hurt less, you know? Mm -hmm. um, we just got a question, is this a mental health session? <laughs> if you want it to be, <laughs> if you have a question, sure. Um, but, you know, and I, and I think um, that's actually a good point, though, with the mental health. I think checking in with your mental health, um, having an outlet, having places and people that you can sort of deal and process with things. Um, I think we're sort of trained, again, culturally in medicine to be really tough and to take things. And because you are entering a, a boys club in a, in a lot of the specialties, it's like, oh, I do. I have to be tougher. But you don't always have to be tougher. You're allowed to have feelings and be empathetic and be human because it actually is what makes you great, you know? And um, in one of my posts, I cited a study from 
Harvard that showed that our empathy is actually part of why patients might do better. And so Hmm. again, that's not anti-man. It's just that, hey, why don't we use our powers for good? And we are, and it shows in clinical research. And so I think just remembering that we're not alone and um, that there are ways to overcome it and there's there's outlets. And um, for surgery in general, I think, you know, I went part, I have a million reasons why I got my MBA and my MPH. And I think you should imagine the role you want in the future and the type of job you want, and then think about what degrees will get you there, what specialty and subspecialty. Don't let like the idea of, of being a surgeon intimidate you out of being it because you know that, um, you know, it's a long haul because you can find work life balance with it. And so um, talk to people who are doing it and, and don't just look at the process, look at the result. Um, because the process is temporary, you know, you can push through and, and work really hard for a couple of years and then get the life you want. So it's very it temporary. It's a lot of work. It seems like, especially yes. as a doctor. <laughs> it is, but I also took some extra steps and got some extra degrees in the meanwhile. So it doesn't have to be this long. What is um, MPH? I don't know. What, I haven't heard. Oh, I'm that. sorry. It's a master's of public health. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. So you're probably like, your mind is going crazy with COVID right now because it's, like a whole public health crisis. Yes. I was actually um, a COVID command center expert at ABC News in New York during the peak of it um, in March and April. I was in New York and I was at ABC News in there. I was the, I was one of four people in their coronavirus command center. So oh I was temporarily God. an expert. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish we had but. more than like left because I feel like I could just take you on so many different places. You're such a fascinating person. But I really liked what you said about um, just providers being people too. And I feel like as a new grad nurse, I was thrown into oncology and there really is no way to prepare you for what you see when you walk in a patient's room and you're just like automatically you're walking into the most intimate humble private moment of their lives and of course you're giving and they're the ones that are suffering but you do end up kind of taking some of that with you after you know room to room to room to room you're going in and giving 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 and giving of yourself and giving your empathy and at some point that does take a toll and I now my current position is more of like a triage nurse I offer phone Mm -hmm. um assistance to patients and so I don't have that one-on-one like physical connection with them while they're like after they've wet the bed and they're a you know an adult and that's super embarrassing but I do think even years later I'm having to unpack that like what did I live through what did I experience what did I give and just you know you're kind of like okay I clocked out now I need to have a work-life balance and I'm gonna go home and relax and not deal with what I just saw, but it, it does take a toll and it, it is hard to know, like, especially as a physician, when you're making decisions about people's lives, like, how do you make it so that it's not all that you think about? Like, I, I like what you said about finding mentors to, to ask and to see who's gone ahead and done that. But like, how do you, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> hello, welcome, Austin. Um, how do you, make it so that you're not just 
suffering? Like, how do you fill your cup so that you're able to yeah. give to patients, I guess? I think that's such a beautiful, important, and powerful question because we don't necessarily train folks to, to go through it. We actually don't really do it in med school. We don't do it in nursing school, PA school. It's not a big part of our curriculum to really um, teach sort of how to heal and recover yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, we barely teach the right bedside manner and how to heal and, and do the emotional healing of our patients. But, um, you know, for us, it's a marathon. You know, each person might have one devastating thing happen to them and hopefully no more than that. But for us, we're seeing this devastation over and over and over. And um, I think one good thing that came out or is coming out of all of this pandemic and everything with COVID is that we have really started to acknowledge the pain that providers are feeling when they're seeing something so devastating so often. We're not designed as human beings to endure that, that trauma that many times in our lifetimes, especially in such a short span. We really need time to recover from that. And um, I think, you know, again, it's back to like what we were saying before about people kind of maybe thinking that doctors and providers and nurses and PAs, et cetera, are a little bit superhuman and they're supposed to be in this space over here when they're dealing with things over here. But, you know, again, we're human first. And so I I don't personally know a provider that was not on the front lines who did not cry during this pandemic. And maybe it was exhaustion. Maybe it was being scared to bring the virus home to their family members. Maybe it was the hours. Maybe it was the 15 layers of PPE. But maybe it's because human touch is so important and we are sometimes not able to touch our patients while they're taking their last breaths. And that's not something we're accustomed to. And it's not part of, you know, how we're created. Um, And seeing that and having that insult to our hearts, to our psyche, to our normal approach for our patients really, really can have devastating impact. And so this pandemic has truly helped in that regard, acknowledge that, hey, mental health is so, so, so important. Let's recognize what our experiences are. Let's address them. Let's provide um, mental health apps and, and different mechanisms to, to sort of help alleviate some of that and hopefully have that continue in what we do from here on out. But same thing, I mean, for you who's um, in in this realm of oncology where Unfortunately, so many people don't survive it. And if they do, quality of life has changed and their continence, like you mentioned, might have changed and things that might feel embarrassing. They're, they're, the way they identify with themselves as people, whether it's they've had their breasts removed or their hair falls out or a limb is taken, you know, these are things that not, not only is your patient experiencing, but you as a provider are experiencing with them. And yeah. I think... I think what I would say, aside from the things we've talked about, about going to these other resources for help, is to also let yourself have a space where you acknowledge that for yourself. You know, what I used to do, um, I went out to St. Jude in Memphis when I was into pediatric oncology and spent a a month there while I was in med school, and whether it was in surgery, and I was um, really interested in reconstructive plastics at the time, and so I was seeing a lot of devastating cases, and I would just give myself some space when I got home, even if it was after a 28 hour shift, I would just 
give myself just like 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever I needed to decompress, but to acknowledge what I went through that day, you know, and be very mindful. I think this concept of mindfulness and meditation, it's all picking up steam with a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but you can use mindfulness and meditation, um, not just to sort of elevate, but to also process and deal with what you're facing. Because I think when we acknowledge it and we say, hey, it's okay to acknowledge it, then it lets us like cope with it in bites Hmm. as opposed to looking back at a career of like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and be like, that was terrible. You know, like my heart was broken and I'm not, I haven't recovered. And you find yourself feeling burnt out. You find yourself um, just not happy anymore. And it, it, it might not be because you're not happy. It might be because you're so hurt from what you're carrying. Um, I digress. I have a psychology and sociology degree, so don't let me go on this tangent too long. No, that's the point is <laughs> The point is it's super important to acknowledge it. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to sit on a a, a couch, although I think everyone should go to a therapist. It means that you should find a way that works for you and make that a part of your routine in your life. And, um, whether it's because of dealing with something like this, like this ridiculous journal article, or whether it's dealing with pandemic or dealing with your career or dealing with other things in life, I think it's just a good practice. Um, and it's definitely helped me cope with sort of seeing some of the devastation I've, I've, I've uh, been through with my patients. So now that you're talking, I'm like, what journal article bikini? Like literally, oh, what, <laughs> like, what, is that what we were originally talking what? about? It's so silly. <laughs> yeah. They're canceled anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I think that's, I, I've never heard that phrase in nursing. I've never heard a physician talk about it like that, but really like we carry what we see and what we treat and each patient encounter that we have, like when you witness such devastation, you carry some of that with you. There's no way that you can't if you're a human, especially if you're an empathetic human, which most of physicians I would like to believe went into medicine because they want to help people. Um, but it is like you, you take a little piece of it with you and, and you do get a lot from patients. Like certainly when I've had patients be grateful or just take a a minute out to say, thank you for what you've given me. Um, that does fill my cup some, but the cup gets quite empty after you give and give and give and give. Beatrice, no. Oh, sorry. Little dogs. But um, it's it's hard to just give and give and not. Um, no, I'm just going to let them out really quick. Shh, girl. <laughs> Little yappy dog. I will tell you that I did just nominate my dog to be people's cutest rescue dog of the year. I wish I could tell you to vote for her, but I I don't know the judging process, but I I hope she wins. Oh, I hope she wins too. She's not very cute, but she's a cute personality. Um, But I like that. Uh, And actually I have a really one like kind of final question. I don't Instagram cuts me off at an hour or us off at an hour. And I don't, I know I was a little bit late and I really appreciate how gracious no you were problem. with allowing me oh to my be gosh, no but my final when you mentioned this I was like you know what but how do you do this when you see somebody that's doing it right that you admire like how do you what are the practical steps to ask them to be your mentor like because because I've, I've heard that before like oh get a mentor or you know seek yeah. out a mentor but like for somebody maybe who's not as socially inept um 
what what are the practical things that you could say to someone to say like help me yeah no that's a great question you know i think it depends because it might be totally fine for me for you to jump in my dms and ask me that and for someone else they're not going to check them or not going to take that seriously and they would expect mm -hmm. a phone call or an email or whatever mm -hmm. but i think depending on how you found the person and, and how, what your connection is. I think the first step is always like to introduce yourself and sort of tell a little bit about your story and just say, I would really love an opportunity to talk to you about something. And, you know, you can sort of maybe offer, I would be happy to do it by email or phone or a coffee meeting. I mean, in the world of pre-COVID and hopefully one day post-COVID, you know, we can sit around and, and grab coffees and teas and stuff together again. So I think it's sort of um, just putting yourself out there. And, and it's not necessarily that you ask them to be a mentor first day, but it's really starting a relationship. Because honestly, just because you think they would make a good mentor for you does not mean that they would be a good mentor for you. Because truly being a good mentor is a two-way street. And they have to be willing to give of themselves. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they're tracking you down or hounding you or following behind you because their lives might be busy, but it might be that they genuinely are concerned about your happiness and success because if they're not and they're, they're um, they don't have the time or, or the means for whatever reason to do that, you could like idolize them and they still might not be a good mentor for you. So I think it's important to keep realistic expectations um, as far as what the ask is, but certainly reaching out and sort of saying why you would think that, you know, they could help you with a question or something is the beginning of it. And then, of course, once you have that interaction, then it's like, you know, being appreciative, following up, um, and not as the smooching of, of, of anything, like, I'm not saying kiss their ass or anything. I'm just saying <laughs> that, you know, like follow up, like, oh, because if you want them to be your mentor, it's a long-term relationship. And so just like any other long-term relationship, you want to put in some work. And so, um, you know, then you ask them another question or maybe then you can meet up for like a, a Zoom or whatever we would do right now. Or, um, you know, just just start. I think, I think the scary part is starting and then um, what I do say, a lot of people get in touch with me about like, oh, I really want to shadow someone. Can you tell me who to shadow? Well, I would say that, yeah, sometimes I can call someone and they'll do me a favor, but that's going to run out, you know, after so many people ask me. So um, what I would say is if you want to get to know a profession or get to know a field and you don't really have a person and so you're just blindly looking for a mentor, instead email broadly, like email a whole bunch of, um, for me, for example, vascular surgeons, women vascular surgeons, and you send out these 50 emails and they're really, really sweet. And then like three of them respond to you. And then one of them has time for you to shadow them. Like, you know, so you really do have to put in some work sometimes for those relationships. But once you do, and it's like, you know, once you get your match, in a sense, then you can really succeed and you can, you, the mentor mentee relationship really can just blossom. Um, I like what there. you said too about sending out 50 requests <laughs> and then getting one because some people yeah. are like, Hey, I found the perfect person and I want to, you know, have them mentor me. And it's like a one-to-one, -one, but yeah. it's really it's like a 50 to one if you want yeah. to be successful. It's, 
you gotta apply broadly for a mentor. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. We have 40 seconds left, but <laughs> I would just like to say I can easily see why ABC hired you. You are Yours. wonderful. <laughs> You're so well-spoken and I really appreciate everything that you said. Um, I just think that it's, generically applicable, whether you're a doctor, any kind of professional, if you um, stay at home with children, it's also professional. I think that or no, it's applicable, not professional, but no, I know what you mean. We're professional too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I think more than I could have ever imagined. And I really, really appreciate your time.